1: let get you a little bit of an update here. Pl- 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 English, uh, too. <laughs> Polls are now closed in Minnesota and Colorado, two of 14 states holding their Super Tuesday contest. Former VP Joe Biden having a very good night so, li- so far, uh, logging projected victories in Virginia, North Carolina, and Alabama. Senator Bernie Sanders projected the winner of his home state of Vermont. That was anticipated. All in all, Democrats are going after more than 1,300 delegates in Super Tuesday states. Let's, uh, let's turn a corner, if we shall, to another topic that um, I think is demonstrative of, uh, as we talked earlier with Pastor Merritt, about the importance of character and the importance of character in the political realm, because when we elect people to office that are in the process of governing us, that pass laws that affect our lives, you'd like to think that you're voting for people you'd like to hope that you're voting for people that are individuals of character and integrity that will do the right thing. But not always. Assembly Bill 2826, demonstrative of this. Let's find out how and why. We're joined by the president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute, Constitutional lawyer Brad Dacus. Brad is always great to have you with us. You know, I I have to I have to admit, sometimes I get your press releases and I think, oh, this must be spam because it seems like the headline reads out of the Onion, <laughs> only to be horribly disappointed to find out that no, no, it's legitimate. The most recent one, and I quote: California seeks to ban boys and girls' toy aisles and clothing sections. What? Tell us what's going on here.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right when people hear about this, Craig. Um, they think this is like a, some kind of joke, you know. It's, uh, but actually, it's it's very, very real. Um, this is legislation that has uh, yet to be enacted. But uh, if it does, if it does become law, then basically this will affect um, every clothing store that has children's clothes, uh, the mainline department stores. Uh, it'll also affect toy stores and any stores selling toys uh, where they uh, have a you know the toys for the boys in one section toys for the girls in another section uh, it's uh, it, and it goes along with this very radical viewpoint uh, that uh, you know that somehow having boys' toys and girls' toys or clothes uh, in some way um, uh, unjustly uh, pressures children to uh, a certain gender and, and, and looking like a certain gender and having toys of a certain gender. Uh, their agenda is they want, I think, to encourage students to have confusion for children to do everything they want to do, everything they can to instill confusion in children with regard to their gender identity. Uh, that is most important. They said this is to prevent, you know, for kids from being, um, bullied or uncomfortable because they want to choose this toy, and of uh, a different gender. Uh, I think that's really a, a, a falsity. I've never heard of, uh, of first off of parents taking children and having them d- uh, dress differently in, in a department store or a diff- go for different clothes or different toys. Uh, this is instead a part of their broader agenda to neutralize gender and gender identity and to bring greater confusion.
1: What I don't understand about this, and beyond the fact that California just loves to pass laws, control, legislate, you know, uh, if there was any state that could be a model for micromanagement, this one is certainly it. But let me see if I get this right. So. Uh, retailers, they have a boys' department, a girls' department, a boys' toy aisle, a girls' toy aisle. And, and they want their child to just be at liberty to enjoy whatever they'd like. And I, I, I suppose that's why the Ken doll was created, so that Barbie, uh, you know, had a playmate. I don't know. But it, it would seem to me that if a parent is of that mindset – What's harm or foul with them saying, well, you know, uh, even though I have a son, instead of buying a a Tonka toy, I want to go buy him a Barbie doll and just go to the next aisle over. Why does it take legislation to mix everything together, to be gender neutral, as if somehow there's something wrong or inherently evil about boys being boys and girls being girls?
2: Yeah, I think that's the real question, is their legislation – implies it's implicit to the concept that there's something evil about clear uh decisive gender identity that's presumed with a child's uh, biological sex and studies show that kids who don't have dysphoria uh are actually much better off and if just left alone just left alone those kids that do have it will grow out of it uh by the time they reach uh, adolescence so uh, it's really almost a, this a, a continued attempt to fan the flames of gender confusion uh... gender identity dysphoria. uh... and uh... you know and those parents who choose that they want to do that and we've seen uh, this happen uh, in certain circumstances where uh... You know, I, 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 you know a couple uh... you know they they have their uh, unconventional uh... sexual relationship and, and they want to have their child um, you know change their gender We see that occasionally, but uh, it's very rare. Most parents are very responsible uh, for the the healthy mental and emotional development of their children. They don't want to breed confusion of any kind like this, um, and that's why this legislation is is so uh, 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 unneeded, because uh, it goes totally against what parents know instinctively uh, is good for their children and and a healthy gender identity development
1: and you know they're marketing this as well you know no child should be stigmatized or bullied and I think we all concur with that and uh, you know if a child has for whatever reason a a you know propensity to uh, to want to uh, you know dress up dolls as a boy you know more so than dig in the mud and blow things up, then, you know, I, I, I suppose let them. But why do we have to suddenly put a noose around the neck of of uh, commercial retailers and say, well, you have to comport with all of this, and we wouldn't want a parent to feel embarrassed? Why does anyone even need to know what sort of a gender of a child you're shopping for if you're just shopping to get the child a toy. I mean, it, it just and, and then they want to impose penalties. It's no wonder that businesses find California so horrifically hostile to trying to uh, to do business here.
2: You're right. Yeah. And we need to remember that these are mandates against businesses, department stores uh, and other you know, clothing stores. Uh, and then also you have the question of, OK, well, um, what sizes are going to you know how, how play out in this regard? Does this apply to to toddlers? Does it apply to infants? Does it uh, you know? It, and then having stores to have this kind of a, a burden hanging over them, uh, unsure if there's going to be some slickwilly attorney coming in and uh, filing a lawsuit, uh, you know, to take them down for fifty, a hundred thousand, or a million. Um, it's it's really very very problematic, and it's very counter. Uh, to those who want a any kind of a healthy economy here in the state of California, which is clearly moving, uh, as far as business and future jobs, in the wrong direction. Uh,
1: this particular piece of legislation, AB 2826, that has been authored by Assemblymember Evan Lowe of Santa Clara. Folks that live in Santa Clara, please take note. Uh, how far along is this thing? What do you think the chances are of it ever seeing legislative light of day?
2: Uh, it's early uh, in the process, so... Uh, you know, we, you know, it has to pass one side legislature after that, then it would go to the other. I, I think that, uh, that normally I would say that something like this wouldn't have a chance, but, you know, in California with the things that have been passed and the, the, the control of, of the radicals in terms of, uh, sex, uh, identity, um, and, uh, the, and gender identity that controls the majority of the legislature. This could very well um, make it to the governor's desk. And this governor, I would actually expect to sign this into law, looking at his past track record.
1: And, again, you know, at the end of the day, listen, uh, parents do what you feel best, I suppose, but you don't have to create gender-neutral toy aisles to pull that off. It's just, it's just madness. And then, and then, of course, you know, steep penalties for retailers that don't. I mean, can we really get into this kind of, 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 of uh, micromanagement Uh, You know, I suppose the state thinks it can, and and that's the reason why the state is becoming so undesirable to do business in. All right, thanks for the update. Brad Dacus, president of the Pacific Justice Institute, we're correcting the record, not part-time writer with The Onion, though he's been accused of it, (laughs) and constitutional lawyer. More details on the web. Check him out at pacificjustice.org. That's (laughs) pacificjustice.org. All right, let's get a look at traffic right now. The latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to the conversation. As we say, we're just about... Ninety one hundred 100 minutes away from the closing of the polls here in california at 8 p.m and a lot of important things at stake we always talk about you know e- even during a midterm election or during a primary like this when it's kind of a foregone conclusion generally how things will go in a state like california nevertheless always critically important that we be involved in the elective process why because it's government of by and for the people we don't live under a kingdom um, we make up our own rules. We select individuals that will go to, well, everywhere from the school board to the city council to board of supervisors to a state legislature to even Washington, D.C. and Congress and ultimately the White House as elected representatives that vote and engage in the operation of our government on behalf of the people of the United States. We're unique In that fashion. And of course, important, therefore, that we have a voice in every aspect of governments. And this also includes making sure that we have a voice when it comes to speaking up for important issues and speaking up for those who have no voice. Joining me now is Brian Johnston. He is Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. He is also the host of Life Matters. Heard Saturday mornings starting this weekend, 11 a.m. right here on KFAX, moving it back to a little bit earlier time, 11 a.m. Saturday mornings. And, Brian, great to have you on the program.
0: Well, Craig, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Folks going to the polls
1: across the country, as we say today, and and while in a state like California, there are no direct pro-life issues on the ballot, there's always indirect pro-life issues when it comes to the kind of candidates that we vote for, isn't there?
0: There really is. I'm really glad you're pointing that out. So many of us, because of the way the news covers elections, we forget the most important place and the most powerful place, where your vote makes a difference is in your community and there's several school board races on the county level up and down the state as well as supervisorial races your vote goes exponentially further in these smaller races whereas on a presidential even a u.s senate race you know your vote really is it's a drop in the bucket And it takes a lot of drops in that bucket but in a school board And the school board is very, very powerful. It determines the laws, if you will, of that local school district. You can have the greatest impact there. And then those people, they end up moving up. Almost every legislator here in Sacramento actually started at the local level.
1: Well, we just talked about a particular measure that's being floated, AB 2826, that would uh, put penalties on stores that had independent aisles for children's toys for girls boys things of that sort and of course the author of the bill is uh, assembly member evan lowe who started out as a city council member i think for campbell
0: yeah it's right there you know right where you live and i know i lived in santa rosa for many years and i was stunned when i realized that senator barry King, who became notorious nationwide for his position on euthanasia and end-of-life care well, he actually started in the school district on the school board where I lived. And I was so uninvolved, I was unaware. And yet he went into the state legislature, the assembly, and then the senate and sponsored bills. Really, all that bills and laws are, they're just ideas, but they're put into force. And as Christians, we have to be willing to indulge and participate in the realm of ideas. We have to be able to rightly handle the words of truth and understand their implications. Otherwise, we're very poor witnesses. We might have lots of theology, but unless we understand the battle around us and apply ourselves to it, we become disengaged, and we're not really doing our job as salt. We're not really leavening the culture. We're not bringing the kingdom of God. It's a faraway thing, and we're disengaged we have a responsibility and in the united states we have the opportunity to be engaged so this election there's many smaller races up and down the state and on the larger sense and we've talked about this before we're a nonpartisan organization national right to life but it doesn't mean you don't pay attention to the parties and what they stand for but i do have to say this that Really, the parties still have very different ideas at their hearts, such that the Democrat Party, it has changed. And the ideas, again, ideas of consequence. So literally every Democrat candidate for the presidency believes in unlimited abortion, at all times. At any time, for any reason, or no reason in particular. To kill a child for no reason in particular throughout pregnancy. That's what choice means. And now, of course, if the child happens to be born in the course of the abortion, we'll set the kid aside. We wanted the kid dead, make sure the kid is dead. That is not what the average person believes in, unless people understand these ideas are deadly, literally deadly. Not a metaphor. These are deadly ideas. And unless we as Christians take the time to look at the impact of ideas, and that's where politics does come in. It's the battle of ideas. So I know at times, and you've done such a great job on KFAX, on Lifeline, Craig, but the battle of ideas is very important for Christians to get engaged in, to understand, and to apply themselves, and that shows up at election time.
1: Absolutely it does, and I think it's important, too, for folks to be mindful, as I suggested in my opening comments, that while a particular measure... May not be on the ballot that goes directly to the heart of the question of of the value of sanctity of life um, the issue of life is on the ballot every time there 's a ballot because every time there 's a candidate that candidate has a position one way or another and may potentially rise to have the kind of impact that can either support life or be detrimental to it so for that reason, we need to be involved and um, You know, I I want to be clear. Some people say, well, I don't really feel comfortable with partisan politics. Politics is dirty, all of this. There can be aspects of it that uh, that's not all that appealing, to be sure. But it is the business of self-governance that we're engaged in. And so are you going to take the gift given to you by God through our founding fathers and engage in self-governance and play a role? Or are you going to simply succumb to third-party influences and let somebody else decide what they think is best for you? Or do you know what's best? Again, the polls are open tonight until 8 o'clock. We hope that you'll get out and vote. Encourage you, too, to check out Life Matters, an important weekly program that dives into the nitty-gritty of issues related to life and uh, the challenges, the frontline challenges, really, uh, to protect the the unborn across the state and across the nation. The program heard Saturday mornings, a new broadcast time this weekend, Saturdays at 11 a.m. Right here on KFAX, that's Life Matters with Brian Johnston. Saturday mornings, 11 a.m., right here on AM 1100 KFAX. And our thanks to Brian for being with us. Updates, by the way, on these issues and more at californiaprolife.org. That's californiaprolife.org. Speaking of pro-life issues, before we um, turn a corner and help you get around it with a little traffic, there's going to be a benefit banquet on behalf of Support Circle Coming up on Saturday, March the 28th, that'll be at the Crown Plaza in Foster City. And the keynote speaker is going to be Chelsea Cameron, who'll be sharing some insights in her talk on how the power of one brings hope for generations to come. This is a free pair of tickets. In fact, we're going to give away two pair, four tickets total, to callers number 11 and 12. Now, let's make it more challenging. Caller number 1112. Oh, wait. Poor Joel just put his coat on. Wait, Joel! No, come back, Joel! I was only kidding, Joel. Joel, I'm just I'm just joking, Joel. Come back. Okay, all right. He, he's back in the chair. Joel, take your coat off. He panicked when I said that. Actually, just callers number eleven and twelve. Complimentary pair of tickets to enjoy the banquet Saturday, March the twenty eighth, ten a.m. It's a luncheon actually, ten a.m. to one p.m. at the Crown Plaza in Foster City, featuring. Very special keynote speaker Chelsea Cameron. Can I promise you Kirk will be there? Mm, don't know, but you might be surprised. So check it out. Join us. We have special seating at the KFAX table for you. Callers number eleven and twelve to triple eight three six seven five three two nine. That's eight 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 three six seven five three two nine triple eight F O R K F A X. Callers eleven and twelve, you win a pair of tickets to enjoy this special. Luncheon Saturday, March 28th, Crown Plaza in Foster City. Keynote by Chelsea Cameron, wife of television star Kirk Cameron and TV star herself in her own right. 888-367-5329. Callers 11 and 12. Call now. While you call, we're going to call on the good folks at the KFAX Traffic Center and get you a look at traffic on this Tuesday. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you Google demise of Detroit, Jarrell and I were just talking about this during the break. The photographs of the destruction of once was a great, proud, and glorious city is alarming. It is shocking. It is dismaying at so many levels. You know, the population of Detroit today is barely 702,000. At its peak, it was over 1,900,000 strong the number of vacant, dilapidated, empty buildings, the amount of erosion that has taken place to the heart of that city is startling. And oddly, as much as we look at Detroit and the demise of its architecture, it kind of sets up a visual picture of what's been going on in our nation's moral, familial, and spiritual infrastructure as well. You know, out here in California, we talk about how the West was won back in the 1800s. Now it seems as if so much of the West, collectively speaking, the Western world, is being lost. In fact, How the West Really Lost God is the title of a new book by best-selling author Mary Eberstadt. And Mary, thank you for taking time to be with us tonight. Mary, by the way, Senior Fellow with the Ethics and Public Policy. And um, we appreciate so much you taking a couple of moments to be with us.
3: Oh, thank you, Craig. Thank you for having me.
1: Boy, this this demise of what we used to know as our nation, and I think anybody who, who spends any time in God's Word and any time reading the newspaper uh, or watching the news has got to see it all around us, as much as we've seen the evidence of the horrific decay of what once was a, a great and proud city called Detroit. A lot of that's going on in the family and in, quite frankly, the church today in the West, too, isn't it?
3: Well, it is. If you look at the news cycle just from the past couple of weeks, and you see all of these horror stories, that's just the latest example of what I think speaks to a lot of people. A lot of people want to know, well, what what happened to God? Uh, What happened to God-fearing people? And they are right to wonder that question, because if you look at statistics from Western Europe, for example, you see a sharp fall off in uh, church attendance over the last few decades, In the united states although it's more religious than europe still you see a rise in the number of people in their twenties who say that they are none of the above no religious affiliation so this idea of secularization or christian decline depending on how you want to put it is real um but the question is what's causing it since the enlightenment we've had a secular answer to that question and that is well you can expect christianity to decline because It's what Karl Marx called the opiate of the masses. It's a a superstitious bundle of beliefs that will go away as people get more rational and more educated. And this is what a lot of sophisticated people think, including now. But this storyline isn't right, Craig. It doesn't hold up when you put it against the data. It's not the case that the better educated you are, the less likely you are to be a Christian. As a matter of fact, in the United States, uh, there's data that show the opposite that if, as you go up the socioeconomic ladder, people are more likely to believe in God and to go to church. The same was true in Victorian London. That's another example I cite in the book. So it's not the case that education alone drives out God. And same with prosperity. It's not prosperity alone that drives out God, there are plenty of prosperous Christians all over the world. So something else is going on in Western secularization, and that's what I'm trying to get at in the book, because I think the answer amounts to two words, the family. Well,
1: and let's talk about that, because there is sort of this chicken or egg which came first scenario set up here. I mean, we certainly recognize that there has been a significant decline in in faith, specifically Christianity uh, in the West, and I think logically we could conclude that as people are less inclined to follow a, a strict belief system that will dictate or somehow lend direction to their behavior concerning things such as uh, children outside of marriage, uh, divorce, uh, abortion, things of this sort, that there's certainly a a strong connection there. Uh, Then, too, I think we could also argue that there is a, a sense of support between uh, the family and how that as the family falls apart we're less inclined to go to church we're not working mm-hmm. together in in kind of that harmonious unit anymore that we're no longer than as actively participating in the church so i guess it kind of comes down to which comes first does religious decline lead to the disintegration of the family does family decline lead to religious disintegration or is it a bit of both
3: Well, I think it's both, but the point is that the conventional way of looking at this is to say, well, first comes religious decline as people sort of sit in the corner one by one and decide that they have a problem with this part of Scripture or that part, or that it's not reasonable to believe in the Bible, and then comes the decline of the family. This is how conventional sociologists tell the story. But my point is there's something else going on here, which is that family decline encourages religious decline, and let, let me just give you a few examples of what I mean by that, because Please. there are things that everybody can understand. So we live in a time when many millions of households don't have a dad in the home, for example. We've seen this incredible rise in um, fatherless households. Now, if you're the child of a household like that, I think you have to make an extra conceptual leap to understand this very basic christian idea of god as a benevolent loving father Mm -hmm. because if you've never known a benevolent loving father that's an idea that's foreign to you so that's just one example of how the way we live now in fractured and atomistic families can put an extra barrier in between an individual and religious belief None of that is to say that folks from broken homes can't become you know, perfectly religious people, but it is to say we have new impediments to that leap that didn't used to exist. So similarly, the Christian story is saturated with family imagery and family ideas uh, from the get-go. I mean, this is a religion that starts with the, uh, the miraculous birth of a baby. We live in a world with falling birth rates, and smaller families... Many people grow to adulthood without ever having held a baby or taken care of a baby. Don't you think that makes it a little bit more uh exotic or foreign to think that you could have this religious story that begins with a baby so These are just some examples of what in the book, I refer to as the phenomenon that family illiteracy breeds religious illiteracy so this is a two way street it's not just that religious decline leads to family decline, it's also that not living in extended natural families the way people have throughout history up until very recently puts new barriers in the way of religious belief.
1: Well, most certainly so. I mean, you think, for example, about the redefining of the family unit these days, that, for example, where, uh, certainly when I was growing up, uh, mom and dad took you to church, we went together as a family and participated as a family in, in uh, you know, religious services and so forth. I, I think you could argue today that, well, a lot of parents, as a single parent, would say, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm working two jobs, and i got to raise five or six kids, whatever the number might be. And so uh, spending copious amount of times at church is oftentimes the, the furthest thing on their mind. So is it any wonder that they're, number one, not seeing the model the way God designed it. Number two, there's not a motivation that would set up the mental mentoring necessary that would do provide the role model to understand hey there's benefits to all of this and when I grow up and someday have a family of my own I wish to continue these self same traditions so is it any wonder that I think there's a very strong connectivity as you're suggesting
3: yes and continuing those traditions is a big part of it this is something else I talk about in the book you know a lot of people uh say well It's not that God has disappeared from Western society. It's that people have gotten more spiritual. They're into different kinds of practices, New Age practices, et cetera. Uh, So they're still spiritual. They're still sort of religious. And I'm not saying they aren't, but what I am observing is that if you read the studies, you see that those are not people who pass down their faith to their children. Those kinds of things don't get transmitted through the generations. And part of the reason is that for whatever reason it is traditionally religious people who tend to have children in this country and not just in this country but across uh, europe and israel and uh, pretty much every place that it's been studied for whatever reason secular people have no families or small families so what you see over time is that what gets passed down through families and families of size is traditional religion and not these variations so Non-traditional households, uh, you know, might go to church and regard themselves as Christians, but they're not likely to pass on the traditions of Christianity to their children and their grandchildren. And that's a really interesting phenomenon.
1: And and the other thing, too, we can make an interesting uh, contrast and comparison here with the rise of the spread of Islam around the world and seeing that largely most of that is happening, certainly not because of their effective evangelism tools, but rather because of the birth rate and the emphasis on the family, the family unit, and uh, procreating at large levels in order to increase the size and the influence and therefore the impact of Islam across the world. So they understand this, and this is something that for a long time, certainly in in Western Europe, uh, with uh, emphasis on procreation, Uh, within the church, help grow the church's numbers as well. We're taking a look at a fascinating new book called How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt, the best-selling author, is with us today. Uh, The new book, by the way, published by Templeton Press. And you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through um, the usual suspects like Amazon.com. Mary, by the way, is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. And we're going to come back to more of this question as we talk about many of the things that have happened to undermine Christianity in the West. And most importantly, it wrestles through the question. Is there anything we can do to stop this decline or is this something that's simply inevitable as much as we might anticipated looking at the decline of what was happening to the Roman Empire that eventually this is just the way things are going to be? Do you think? Come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. (laughs) And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Mary Eberstadt is with us tonight. We are talking about her new book, How the West Really Lost God. And, you know, we're seeing this strong connection with a lot of things, too, in terms of just the shift in our thinking, aren't we, Mary? I mean, in, in terms of the, the, the rise of things like moral relativism, secular humanism, things of this site, which, which always kind of tend to take all of the kind of one-by-one one dismantling the foundations of our faith, don't they?
3: Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that the new atheists occupied the public square for a while, and between them and what's been going on uh, in in this administration, you could argue that um, Christians have been taking something of a rhetorical beating out there. Um, But that does not mean that all hope is lost, and that's actually part of why I wrote the book, because I think there are a lot of things going on that point the way to a religious and with it a family revival down the road.
1: How do we go about affecting that? I mean, as much as we recognize that there is a significant atrophy going on of not only the spiritual strength of America, but the West in general, and I think it's fair to include Europe in this, uh, and then, too, the the demise of the American family. We mentioned here at the start of our conversation, Mary, uh, such things as the high rate of abortion, divorce in our country— single parents. You know that 70% of the births in the city of Detroit today are all to unwedded mothers. So looking at this, what can we do to help stem the tide or reverse this slow apparent march toward the eventual destruction of Western society and civilization?
3: Well, let me give you a couple of reasons, Craig, why I'm an optimist about this. Um, First of all, in the book, The first thing I try to do is get rid of this idea that I think is the most prevalent idea uh, describing religious decline, this Enlightenment idea that Christianity's eventual demise is inevitable, that as people get smarter and richer, they will decide that they can jettison this thing. This is not what has happened. The data don't show it. The timeline doesn't show it. So it's really important to understand, first of all, that the idea of inevitable decline has been contradicted by the facts. That in itself is grounds for optimism, I think. The second thing I think is really interesting is the relationship between Christian decline and the welfare states of the West. For many decades now, we've had these gigantic welfare states telling us that they can be counted upon to act as family substitutes. If you remember the, the Julia video that was part of the reelection campaign of President Obama, that one about the young woman who is helped from cradle to grave by the welfare state from daycare to old age, that's an example of what I'm talking about. This promise has been out there. But if we look at what the welfare states of the West are are doing now, if we even read the financial pages as as laymen and lay women, We see that these states are in incredible financial trouble. We see that the shrinking of the family and the fracturing of the family has put incredible burdens on the welfare state, picking up the pieces and bankrolling the fractured families of the West. And we see that down the road they are unsustainable because there are not enough taxpayers to go around. It's really as simple as that. It's more obvious in Western Europe than in America quite yet, But we are headed in the same direction, just as we were headed in the same direction with rates of family fracture and rates of secularization. So the point is, when the welfare states of the West are revealed to be incapable of keeping the promises that they have made, people are going to do what people always do in times of adversity. They go home. They go to church. They look for those elemental, organic connections of what's nearest to them. We saw this after 9-11, when many millions of people who had not been in church in a long time suddenly showed up, and it was standing room only in the churches for uh, weeks and months after that event. I'm sure you remember that, too, because it was countrywide. Of course. That's an example of how real shocks to the societal system have a way of putting people back in touch with their roots. And... For that reason, I think you can argue that down the road, out of the the, uh, curtailing of the welfare state or a more realistic understanding of the welfare state, you can actually see the seeds of family and religious revival.
1: Sadly, though, a lot of this comes on the heels, as you suggest, when we've gone through some sort of a major crisis that kind of pulls us together, causes us to reevaluate our priorities, rethink the direction of our lives. It happened, uh, certainly, Sandy Hook. It happened after 9-11. So at the end of the day, is it maybe things such as the current moral, political, economic crisis that, in a sense, might sadly create the groundwork for spiritual revival in the West?
3: Yes, but I don't think it has to be catastrophic necessarily. Um, One of the things I I note with interest is that uh, in 2008, during the uh, economic crash then, a couple of interesting things happened that weren't much talked about. But one was the, the return of adult children to the homes of their parents because they couldn't afford to move out on their own. To the extent that this was noticed, people thought it was a bad thing. Um, you know, that they should have had the money somehow to move out on their own. But I see a silver lining in that, which is the unintentional reinvigoration of the extended family. And I always talk about extended family, not nuclear family. Nuclear family is, a, I think, too constricting a term. I think it holds people to too, too strict a standard. But the extended family, the idea of a family that goes through the generations and is connected in all kinds of different ways, I think we did see the reinvigoration of that kind of family on account of the downturn in 2008. Also in 2008, the divorce rate dropped. Now, that's a really interesting thing. And divorce lawyers themselves said that they thought it dropped because adversity made people think twice about uh, something that's expensive and difficult like divorce. So... I do think also that over time people are rational creatures, that the the toll, the various kinds of tolls of the ways that we live now that are so different from the way our ancestors lived uh, will be taken account of, and that people of the future will have a more expansive understanding and a more appreciative understanding, perhaps, of the benefits of the extended family than we have today.
1: You know, so I see all
3: kinds of grounds for hope out there.
1: It's always sad, though, when we have to um, realize what we have once we come close to losing it. Uh, but maybe, as you suggest, Mary, hopefully as we kind of get the clarion call out there, the word of warning, call the attention of folks, that those that have an ear to hear, that can hear what the Lord is saying to his church, uh, can rise up and respond and help stem the tide. It's a fascinating read and one I would recommend, How the West Really Lost God. Mary Eberstadt is its author and our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, the book is published by Templeton and you can get it online, uh, certainly through amazon.com. Also, Mary has a website, howthewestreallylostgod.com. It's also the title of the book. Easy to remember, howthewestreallylostgod.com. And it is a It's an important indictment, and I think one that we need to take to heart quite seriously. Our thanks to Mary Eberstadt for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, Grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long.
3: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the
1: ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications. All rights reserved.